chapter 4, would take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we will begin in verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glorious privilege we have to gather as your people on this beautiful, chilly Sunday morning to come warm our hearts by the fire of your word. And Father, I pray that you would Show yourself mighty in this passage of Scripture, that you would reveal once again to our hearts the glory of your Son, the glory of our salvation, and what you have done for us in Christ. Father, I pray that as we dive into this passage, that its truths would be made plain to your people, and that your word would go forth and conform us to the image of your Son. And for those who do not know you, Father, that they would be called this morning to salvation to know Christ, to lay down their lives and follow him. So, Father, be with us now as we enter into the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. 
can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you. Just want to start by saying thank you to Brother Gary and Pastor Kevin, neither of which are here, but I'm going to thank them anyway for stepping in for me over the past couple of weeks. Uh, it was a bit of a rough go there for a while, but I'm, I'm thankful to be back with you today, worshiping again. And sickness really is a reminder to us all of how, how weak and vulnerable we really are. We truly are a dying people, and very often God sees to it through His kind providence that we remember how weak and fickle we really are, and how much we need Him. Ultimately, our greatest need is Him. At all points and all circumstances in our lives, He is our greatest need. And for the believer, He's not only our greatest need, He is our greatest desire. As those who have been born again, who have received new hearts, who have been recreated by the Spirit of God, we have been hardwired in such a way that our single greatest desire of the believing heart is God Himself. It is to worship God. And this is actually a central point of what it means to be saved. And it's exactly what we are going to see Jesus bring out today in this passage that we are looking at. As we are jumping back into our study of John's Gospel, we are jumping back in right to the middle of this conversation with, between Jesus and the woman at the well. If you are new to Faith Community Church or you're just visiting, part of what we do here on Sunday morning, our philosophy of preaching, is what we would call systematic expositional preaching. And that simply means that we take a book of the Bible and we work through it verse by verse until we have gone all the way through the book. And right now we are working through the Gospel of John. And the last time we were together, we looked at the first half of this conversation in which Jesus offers this Samaritan woman life, if she would only ask. He said in verse 10, Woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus breaks cultural barriers and engages this Gentile Samaritan woman asking her for a drink, but in reality, he was offering her a drink of eternal life. Sadly, she was not getting it. She had a kind of who-do-you-think-you-are attitude towards Christ. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself. It's been supplying water for 2,000 years. Who are you? This woman did not understand. Even when Jesus got explicit with her and explained that the water he was offering was eternal life, that she would never thirst again, she still missed it. She said, sir, give me this water. Why? So that I will never have to come back here and drink again. She was still thinking on the physical plane, the natural level. She had utterly missed the point. She did not understand who this man was, or what he was actually offering her. But Jesus doesn't give up on her, as we will see today. 
This was going somewhere. Jesus knew that she wouldn't understand. And in mercy and grace, he keeps driving this conversation to get her to a place where she could understand. Now, on one level, as we look at this today, it seems like this conversation is kind of bouncing all over the place. And in some ways, it is. But there is a divine purpose to the entire thing. Every element of this conversation was orchestrated by the providence of God in mercy towards this woman. Last time, Jesus laid out his offer of salvation, and now he's going to get her to a place of understanding what salvation is. In the second half of this conversation, there's three elements that Jesus brings out here that are necessary in salvation. We're going to see the need of the sinner, the heart of the Father, and the identity of the Savior. And Jesus brings all of this into this conversation to bring this woman to a place where she can see the truth, where she can drink from the living water that he is offering her. The one thing I want us to notice as we work through this passage is what is at the very heart of salvation. What is God after? This is one of the most significant texts in all of the Bible that shows the heart of God in salvation. And the answer to that is worship. God is making for Himself worshipers. He is creating a people who truly worship Him. If you are in Christ, you have been created in Christ for this purpose for worship. And this passage is going to draw that out. But let's start here where Jesus shows this woman her need as a sinner. Look at verse 16. Actually, let's back up to verse 13 and read it on to 16 so we can feel the shift in the conversation. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Now what is going on here? Why did Jesus pivot from the discussion on living water and tell this woman to go and get her husband? Why why the shift? I believe there's two things that Jesus is aiming to accomplish here. One is he is revealing himself, as we will see throughout this passage, but also he is revealing her. He is trying to get this woman to see that she needs what he is offering. He brings up her sensitive and checkered past for a reason. And it's not merely to display his omniscience. Now certainly that is a part of it, to be sure, but he chose this subject for a reason. He could have shown his omniscience in a thousand different ways. Just like he did with Nathaniel when he said, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. He could have told her what she was doing yesterday. He could have told her what she had for breakfast that morning. But rather, he brings up what is likely 
the most sensitive and shameful topic in her entire life. Up to this point, she has shown herself to be utterly clueless to the spiritual nature of this conversation, of his offer, and of her deeper need. And so Jesus is going to bring that out. Go call your husband. Come here. Look how she responds. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Now that is technically true. And Jesus will acknowledge that. She currently does not have a husband. But that is not the whole truth. And she knows it, and he knows it. As one commentator put it, in the fewest possible words, she tries to put a stop to this dangerous subject at once. She wants to move on. She wants to pass this subject by. But Jesus doesn't let her move on. Look what he says. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, these were some stinging words from Christ. Not, as he, not only does he call her out on her partial truth technicality, but he reveals to her that her past and her present is no secret to him. He knows it all. Now, we do not know the details of her divorces. We're not given insight on that. And because of that, there are some modern commentators who want to make the argument that because the system in which she lived was an oppressive system towards women, which it was, it was a system in which women were generally dependent upon men, and men could divorce their wives for just about any reason, and women could not divorce their husbands. But because that was the general nature of the system, some want to argue that this therefore means that this was not about her sin that this was more about her perpetual rejection and destitution in this society. And while that assessment of the culture is true, it was oppressive towards women, absolutely, the conclusion that this was not about her sin is wrong. And I'm going to give you several reasons why I think that is clear in the text. The first and most obvious reason is because the five divorces are only part of the problem that Jesus brings out. We cannot gloss over the fact that she is currently living with a man who is not her husband. She is in an ongoing sinful relationship outside of the confines of marriage, which the law condemned, and she knew it. As one who held to the first five books of the Bible, she knew that. Fornication is a sin against God and not justified in any circumstance. And Jesus emphasizes her current ongoing sinful status. Second reason is the amount of divorces given. The details of her divorces are not made known, yes, but just because the system was lopsided towards men does not mean that she was not at fault. The fact is there were five marriages, which was unheard of in this culture. Divorce was common, but it was not this common. Rabbis allowed for three legal marriages at most. This was not a typical situation at all. And in those five divorces, the common denominator was her. 
And with that many, there was likely a reason that five men had divorced her. And it's for this reason that many scholars draw the conclusion that she was likely a serial adulterer. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it certainly would explain her five marriages and her willingness to abide in an ongoing sinful relationship. And the case for that gets even stronger with the third reason. The third reason is the woman's final reaction to all of this. And we will look at this next week, but go ahead and look down at verse 29 at her response. After her conversation with Christ, she goes back to her town and says to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She doesn't say, come see a man who told me everything that has happened to me. Nor does she even say, come see a man who told me what I am currently doing, only speaking of her current sin. No, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. When Jesus brings out her divorces, she recognizes instantaneously as something that she had done. Not something that has merely happened to her. She is aware of her guilt. And that is clear from her own testimony to the town people. A fourth reason is the nature of this conversation. This conversation is ultimately about salvation in Christ. As Jesus will tell her, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus did not come to save people from rejection. He did not come to save people from loneliness. Now, ultimately, those things will be rectified in our salvation, especially in glory, but that is not what salvation is ultimately about. Christ came to save sinners from their sin, from the wrath of God against their sin. We are sinners who need forgiveness, who need cleansing, who need living water. And if we don't see that, and we don't see our need of forgiveness, we don't see the gravity of our sin against God, then we cannot be saved. That's what this conversation is about. And finally, the last reason we know this is about her sin is because of the theme of the book. Light has come into this world, and it exposes the darkness. It may feel like a long time ago, but chapter 3 is only one chapter back. And in verse 19, we read this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. See, this woman does not want her sin to be exposed. And that's why she merely said, I have no husband. She wants to be done with that conversation. But in an act of mercy and grace, Jesus pushes on and he exposes her anyway. Why? Just to make her feel bad? No. To bring her to himself that she may find forgiveness and mercy in Him. That is what He is doing. And that is true for anyone who is here today. No matter how dark or checkered your past may be, 
If you bring it into the light, if you bring it to Christ, you will find a merciful Savior who is ready to forgive, who offers you living water, who offers you cleansing and eternal life. But you, may, you must see your need of mercy. If you come to God confident in yourself, confident in the flesh, hiding or downplaying your sin, thinking that you are in fact a good person, that you are in fact worthy to be in His presence and to receive from His hand, you will find no mercy. Because God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, to those who see their need. And Jesus is bringing this woman to that understanding. So he brings up her sin in mercy to show her the need of a sinner. Look how she responds. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. She did not try to deny it. She did not try to justify it. She did not try to explain it away. There was no need. She had been pegged, and she knew it. Jesus hit the nail on the head. She knew she was dealing with someone who was not normal, and she believed him to be a prophet. She knew, though she did not know this man, she knew that he knows her. And the only thing she can conclude was that he was a prophet which is not wrong because he is a prophet, but it's not sufficient because Jesus is much more than that. But understanding herself to be in the presence of a prophet, she moves to another question, a question which Christ will use to show her the heart of the Father in salvation. Look at verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, on one level, this question could be viewed as an evasion. Jesus had just opened up her painful past and revealed to her that he knows everything about her. And she doesn't want to say anything about that. She doesn't comment on it. She just changes the subject. However, why that might have some truth to it, I don't believe this change of subject was arbitrary or just merely in evasion. She just brought up the most controversial subject that existed between Jews and Samaritans, their rival places of worship. If you remember from our discussion last time we were together, this issue was an issue between Jews and Samaritans that had been going on for centuries. And just by way of reminder, the Samaritans were descendants of the Jews who were left behind in the exile. Their forefathers intermarried with the pagan nations all around them and created a hybrid half-breed people and a hybrid religion. Eventually, they dropped off their pagan gods and most of their pagan practices and directed their attention just towards Yahweh alone. But they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, and they rejected the rest of the Hebrew canon. Well, the Jews despised them for that. They viewed them as half-breeds who had corrupted the true worship of God. And after the Jews returned from their exile to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans had offered help, but they were rejected 
by the Jews. The Jews said, we don't want your help. Now, both groups believed that there was to be a particular place where God would make his holy habitation and where he was to be worshipped. And they both got this command from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5 says this, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now we know from Israel's history that eventually the temple of God was built as authorized by God by David's son Solomon in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, also known as Mount Zion. For Israel, that was where God has made his holy habitation. That was where the temple was built. Now, Solomon's temple was destroyed in the exile. But the temple was rebuilt in the same spot after the exile. And they called that era of time, we call that era of time, Second Temple Judaism, if you've ever heard that phrase. It refers to the time after the Second Temple was built on the place where God had ordained it. However, the Samaritans do not recognize that history. Remember, they rejected the rest of the Hebrew canon, everything beyond Deuteronomy. So rather, they built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And the reason they chose this location was because it served as a place of significant biblical history. This was the first place that Abraham built an altar to God when he entered the promised land in Genesis 12. It was a place where Jacob would later build an altar to God in Genesis 33. Further, it was, very significantly, the place where the blessings of God were spoken by Moses to the children of God when they entered the promised land on Mount Gerizim in Deuteronomy chapter 11. So because of all of this history, for the Samaritans, this was the obvious place to establish the habitation of God, the temple of God. So they built their rival temple around 400 B.C., and they declared it to be the true place of worship in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 12. However, in 129 B.C., the Samaritan temple was destroyed by the Jews. The Jews came in and burned it to the ground and left it in ruins, and it was not rebuilt The Samaritans still went there. They still went to that location to perform their ritual sacrifices and and to worship, but it was just ruins. So at this time, this was obvious, the most controversial subject between the Jews and the Samaritans. This history had gone back for many, many years. And that mount, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple laid in ruins, was an eyeshot of where Jesus and the Samaritan woman were sitting. They may have even been able to see the ruins while they are having this conversation at Jacob's well. 
So this woman says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, when she says our fathers, that's a reference to the patriarchs, specifically to Abraham and Jacob. She's already referred to Jacob once in this manner back in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? So fathers here is a reference to the worship of the patriarchs in this location. And when she says to Jesus, you say that in Jerusalem, that you is actually a plural. Some of your translations will bring that out. She's not merely talking about Jesus. She's talking about the Jews in general. Our fathers worshipped here, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now this is a statement with an implied question. And the question is obvious. Which one is it? Is it Mount Gerizim? Or is it Mount Zion? Where is the appropriate place to worship God. And at this point, I believe this to be a genuine question. This woman rightly perceives that Jesus was a prophet. He is more than that, certainly, but he's certainly not less than that. And recognizing that she is standing before a prophet, she takes the opportunity to ask him a question that has been burning on her heart. Where and how am I supposed to worship God? I don't believe for a second that this was merely an evasion of a sensitive subject. She wants to know. And under the providence of God, she goes right to the heart of the matter, which is worship. And Jesus goes with her. He doesn't continue to pound on her past which again shows that his purpose wasn't merely to shame her, but rather to bring her along to a place where she could see her true needs. And now he's going to take her even further, and he's going to show her what it is the Father is looking for in sinners like her, like you, and like me. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, when Jesus uses the word woman here, he's not being disrespectful. We talked about this back in chapter 2 when he said the same thing to his mother. This is not a derogatory term in this culture. It did not carry the same connotation as it would in ours. He is being respectful to her, but he gives her a surprising response especially coming from a Jew. I can guarantee this is not what she expected. She was expecting him, as a Jew, to tell her why Jerusalem was the appropriate place of worship. But instead, he says, an hour is coming where the answer is neither. Not Mount Gerizim, and not even Jerusalem. Now, there is a double meaning here in his words. First and foremost, this is, in fact, Jesus referencing what is coming through the inauguration of the new covenant. Namely, that worship will no longer be confined to an outward location. True worship will not take place through Mount Gerizim nor Jerusalem. In the new covenant, access to God is not about a particular place. 
There is no holy place that one must enter into in order to enter the presence of God. Rather, access has shifted to a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. In order to worship God, one must come to Him. Not to this place or to that place, but to Christ. Remember, when Christ speaks of the coming hour all through this book, it speaks of the inaugurating of the new covenant at His death, burial, and resurrection. And when that took place, when Christ was crucified on the cross, what happened at the temple? In the center of the temple, you have the holy place. And in the center of that, you have the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was. And between the holy place and the Holy of Holies was a massive curtain. Massive curtain, estimated to be about 60 feet tall. And when Christ died, the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And it was torn from top to bottom, signifying that God had done this. No one else could tear it from top to bottom. This was a work of God, not of man. The old order had come to an end. No longer was he to be worshipped in that manner. No longer is there special presence of God found in a temple. It is found in Christ. And by extension, it is found in all who are in Christ. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here. But also embedded in these words is, is likely a reference to what finally took place in 70 A.D., when under God's judgment, the Romans came in under Titus's command and destroyed the Jews and destroyed the Jewish temple, bringing a physical finality to what was already spiritually true. Worship bound to that location had ceased to be. And Jesus is telling this woman that we are on the cusp of something utterly new. God is doing Something new, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A new covenant is coming. A new era is dawning where worship will go through a massive transformation. But Jesus does address the difference between Jews and Samaritans as she is raising. Look at verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In very straightforward terms, Jesus does not dance around the truth. He responds with a plural you, meaning he is addressing not just her, but Samaritans as a whole. He's saying, you Samaritans don't even know what you're worshiping. And Jesus is not attacking the sincerity of their worship. He's making a factual statement about the object of their worship. The Samaritans do not know God. They have rejected most of God's divine revelation and created their own form of worship, and their worship is in vain. They do not know Him. Conversely, the Jews had the full revelation of God and were the covenant people of God. Now, this is not a statement that all Jews knew God or worshipped Him rightly. We, we know that to be true just because of the way Jesus is going to condemn the Pharisees all through this book. In John chapter 8, He tells them that they do not know 
God, the Father, that God is not their Father, and that they belong to their true Father, which is the devil. So this is not an affirmation that all Jews rightly worship and know God. It is simply an affirmation that under the Old Covenant, the Jewish system of worship came from God, whereas the Samaritans did not. Which is why he says, for salvation is from the Jews. Now notice carefully what he said there. He did not say that salvation is in the Jews, as in, as in salvation being, is found in being Jewish, nor did he say that salvation is by the Jews, as if it is the Jews who bestow salvation. No, it is from the Jews. The preposition matters. Meaning God's plan of salvation and redemption has been working through the Jews, through this chosen nation, and it is meant for the world. And this is something even the Jews got wrong. They forgot that they were not only to be blessed of God, but also that they were to be a blessing to the nations according to the Abrahamic covenant. Instead, they focused on the first part, and they focused inward upon themselves. But God used this covenant people to bring about the Savior of the world. It is from them that the Messiah came for all the nations. Remember how John the Baptist introduced him back in chapter 1? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very one who is the Lamb for the world is standing before this Gentile Samaritan woman offering her living water and eternal life. And it is through Him that true worship takes place. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, Jesus says the hour is coming, speaking of the inauguration of the new covenant and the cross and the resurrection. And yet He also says the hour is now here because the arrival of the Messiah has come. What the world has been waiting for, the center of God's grace towards humanity, and everything is set in motion, moving towards the cross. And the reason Jesus speaks of that coming hour is because it is the cross that produces true worshipers. And notice this is what the Father is after. No longer does he mention Samaritan or Jew. He's done with that. He is creating for himself something that transcends those categories. It transcends every category, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. God's heart, the Father's desire, is to have a people who will truly worship him. Now we must ask, why does Jesus choose to use the term Father here rather than God? Why specifically Father? Well, he does so intentionally. Because of the implied connotation. In order for there to be a father, there must be children. 
True worshipers, the true worshipers that Jesus speaks of, are those who have been granted the right to be called children of God. And the true children will worship the Father. They know God as Father. We saw this back in the prologue. John already introduced this theme. He said, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Only the children of God can worship Him as Father. And they do so in spirit and in truth. Jesus says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then again in verse 24, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? There is some debate on what is meant by this. Is this a reference to the human spirit? Or to the Holy Spirit? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. These two terms are brought out together quite often in Scripture, and they, when they are, they are always a reference to the Holy Spirit. John later even refers to him repeatedly as the Spirit of truth. To worship in spirit is to be one who has been endowed with the Spirit of God the spirit of adoption through the new birth. It is by the Spirit that we know God as Father, that we cry out to God as Father, Romans 8, and that we worship God as Father. Because God is Spirit, by which He means He is a spiritual being rather than a physical being, He must be worshipped in a spiritual manner through the Spirit of God. So worship in the Spirit is is a reference to the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the believer's life. But he also must be worshipped in truth. What does it mean to worship God in truth? Well, this is a key term all throughout this gospel. John's using it very intentionally throughout the narrative. We have it here, and then in John chapter 5, Jesus declares that John the Baptist came to bear witness to the truth. In John 8, Jesus makes his famous statement, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then again in John 8, he rebukes the Pharisees for not believing the truth. And then later in the gospel, at his trial, Jesus told Pilate that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then Pilate asks the right question, what is truth? But then he walks away. He walked away from the answer that leads to eternal life. Because in Jesus' final discussion with his disciples, he revealed what truth is. In John 14, in the upper room discourse, he said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself is the truth. Access to worship the Father comes through Him. Our worship is grounded upon the truth of who Christ is and what He has done. That's what true worship really is. 
And if you've noticed, this is a triune worship. We worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The only true worship that goes up anywhere in the world is worship that is done in spirit and in truth. A triune worship. Worship that is grounded on the truth of Christ and empowered by the indwelling of the Spirit with the glory of the Father as its ultimate aim. That is what worship is. Every other form of worship is a false worship. Muslims as Unitarians are not worshiping God. Mormons who are truly polytheist in every way are not worshiping God. Jehovah's Witnesses who are henotheist are not worshiping God. Modern Jews who have rejected Christ in the new covenant are not worshiping God. And true worship is not about outward forms. It is not about rituals. It is not about holy places. It is about those who have trusted in the person and work of Christ and have been born from above and given the Holy Spirit and are worshiping the Father as His adopted children. It is a spiritual business from beginning to end and it constitutes the whole of the Christian's life. It is not simply a performed ritual. Now, most certainly, as the children of God, we gather on Sundays to worship Him as prescribed in Scripture. But worship takes place in this room, not because this room is a holy place. Not because of the songs that we choose to sing. And not because when a crowd gathers, worship automatically happens. No, worship takes place in this room because it is a gathering of people who are standing on the truth of Christ and are endowed with the Spirit of God. But the fact is, the truth is, in a room this size, that does not describe every single person in this room. Some of you will go to church Sunday after Sunday, and you will stand, and you will sing, And you will hear the preached word, but you are not worshiping. You are surrounded by worship, but you are not worshiping. No matter how high you may lift your voice. And the truth is, you've never worshiped a day in your life. Why? Because you have not put your faith in Christ. Because you have not been born from above. Because the Spirit of God does not dwell inside of you. So you cannot worship, no matter how sincere you think you are. That kind of worship, the Bible says God hates. And He has always hated it. As Isaiah said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me. God does not want that kind of worship. God does not want ritualistic, formalistic religion that has no heart-level reality to it. No, He wants worship that springs from the truth in one's inward being. He, He is seeking worshipers who do not check the box of their religion in order to try to appease Him, but rather worshipers who love Him and long to commune with Him. And He is creating a people who will worship Him in that way through the power of the Gospel, through the transformation that comes 
with regeneration. Now, it's obvious that this woman could not understand the depths of all of this, but she understood that this man was presenting something that was radically different from anything that she had ever heard, spoken with an authority that she had never encountered before. And I think, personally, I think she is starting to get it, or at least wonder if this man is something more than just a prophet. She has gone from probably thinking this man is a little off his rocker to acknowledging that he is at least a prophet. And now I think she's starting to wonder, who is this man really? And I think she throws out this last comment just to see what he'll do with it. Look at verse 25. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Christos is simply the Greek term for Messiah. And she says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, as a Samaritan, her understanding of the Messiah was very limited because they only recognized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But their main understanding of the Messiah came from the prophecy of Moses about the coming prophet who was greater than Moses which most certainly was a prophecy about Christ. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verse 18, God says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. She was anticipating one who was coming who would explain God's will. That's what she's referencing here. Jesus had just told her something radically different from anything she had ever heard from either Samaritans or Jews. And she says, well, I know Messiah is coming. And he will clear all of this up. And then Jesus brings it all together for her by revealing his true identity. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I would have loved to have seen the look on this woman's face at that declaration. There's no more dialogue after this. In fact, we will see in the coming verses that she doesn't even waste any time. She leaves her water jar there and she runs back to the town to share this good news with the town people. She believed. Jesus showed her that she was a a sinner and he showed her that the Father is seeking true worshipers. And he showed her that the only one who could get her from that to here, from a sinner to one who worships in spirit and truth. The only one who can accomplish that was standing before her. What's amazing about all this is this is the first and most explicit time that Jesus reveals his Messiahship during his ministry. And he doesn't do it in the temples and the synagogues where all the elite religious Jewish men were. No, he does it at the side of a well with an audience of one. 
in a culture that viewed women as second class, and honor those who had made a public showing of their religion, Christ bestows this privilege of revealing his identity to a rejected and sinful, no-name Gentile woman. And through her faith in Christ, she became the type of worshiper that the Father is seeking. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that if you are in Christ, you are a worshiper. That is central to your identity now. Your whole life is about worship, not just Sundays. Sundays matter, absolutely. There is a glory to God's gathered people. But your whole life is worship. And because of Christ, you have access to God at all times, every day. Your whole life is worship. The Spirit of God dwells within you every day. Conduct your life in a manner that is worthy of that calling. Worship God in everything you do, in your vocations, in your recreations, in your marriages, in your fellowship with others, in the raising of your children, in the way you engage the lost, in the way you eat or in the way you drink. Whatever you do, do all unto the glory of God. You are a worshiper. That is who you are. Live in that manner. And for those of you who have not yet come to Christ, who have not yet worshipped God, you need to know that the offer of Christ to this woman still stands before you today. Jesus said if you would just ask, He would give you living water. He would give you forgiveness. He would give you cleansing. He would make you altogether new. And he would make you his own. He would make you the type of worshiper that the Father is seeking. If you would just ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this glorious passage. Thank you for our glorious salvation. Thank you that you have made us your children, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth, that we may enter into a relationship in union with a triune God that will last for all of eternity. Oh Lord, help us to be better worshipers. Help us to live our lives in such a manner that reflect what you have done in our hearts. Help us to conduct our lives in holiness with you in mind all the days of our lives. Lord, make your people conform to the image of Christ. Make us like your Son. And for those who don't know you, Lord, call them. Open their eyes, please, we ask. Have mercy upon them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.